Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates that the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back into the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Vanguard is in the house. He's on staff there. I think they just don't know who he is. But hey, enjoy it while you have it. In my former book, this is the second, all theologians agree, the second, almost like season one, season two of a TV series written by a Greek doctor called Luke. It's interesting because all the others were written by Jews to the best of our ability. So this is a man who is a scientific man, a man of brains, a means, an historian who is committed to the detail of the story. I love stories. Stories are my absolute favorite. My culture is a storytelling culture. So I have very fond memories of sitting on my grandpa's bed as a little kid on the farm and him telling us stories which I now know to be vilely untrue but when you're five, six, or seven, you are mesmerized by stories of lions and baboons and elephants. Uh, it took me a while to understand that it was the creativity of his imagination rather than truth that drove our storytelling. But this continuity of thought uh, and the story really introduces us to the acts of Jesus and then the acts of the Holy Spirit through God's Jesus people. And that's what we want to spend some time Looking at Theophilus is an interesting man because theologians can't land as to who it was written to. Theophilus, the Romans argue, was a Roman governor, a man of high authority, and Luke wrote with great respect towards him. Interesting thought and notion, we won't know for sure. The Jews say, oh, absolutely not. He was definitely a high priest and, um, or a man of great influence within the Jewish community, which is why he wanted to know about Jesus and these Jesus people, this kind of, this group of Nazarites, what would happen to them? Oh, no, absolutely not, say another group of Christians. That can pass, not possibly be the case. In fact, I heard a new one, uh, Skip Ziegler, who leads the Calvary Chapel, Albuquerque, said he believes Theophilus was actually Luke's benefactor. In those days, Skip argues, um, 
the doctor wasn't as they are today, Austin, who earn a whole lot of money. And we think it's disproportionately, but they've got millions of dollars of debt, so they have to earn a lot of money and live for the rest of their lives trying to get back to normalcy. Those days, a doctor had to have, like an artist, an athlete, had to have a benefactor, someone who would fund his endeavours. Interesting thought, of course, and who knows for sure. And then the last one that I heard, which I personally like, but without any substance or truth, one uh, author wrote, and he said he thinks Theophilus was actually Paul's lawyer in Rome. And he argues that he needs information. He needs the facts. That's why Luke chapter one starts with, I, I, I have many eyewitness accounts. I've gone and done my homework. I can legally say what I'm writing to you is true. And then he picks up on this to add to it. And ultimately, as you know, this letter, this book ends with Paul in prison in Rome. So that's, I, I think you can argue that really well. Not that important, but for the historically curious, as I am, quite possibly it is what happened. But what catches my eye as we just introduce the subject is just the idea that this is what Jesus began. This is what Jesus began to do. Well, the, the implication is he didn't finish it. And the possibility, therefore, is someone has to complete it. And it's the compelling nature of us participating with the Holy Spirit to complete what Jesus began. It's supernatural. It's impossible. It's highly, highly powerful. I want to read two quotes to you. They are on the screen because they're quite chunky. Because not only is it to begin, but it's what Jesus did and taught. Listen to uh, Yuroslav Pelikan. He is a theologian and he wrote this and I liked it a lot. He said, Acts is a book of frantic action amidst a constantly shifting scene, conspiracy, intrigue, ambush, hostile confrontations and fierce conflict, sometimes to death, rioting, lynching, mobs, personal violence, incessant travel, he argues, on an Odyssean-like scale. All over the Mediterranean world, complete with a shipwreck, venomous snakes, chains, imprisonments, famine, earthquakes, crime, and punishments. Well, it's true. And it's always curious to me, those who say, Chris, well, I don't know if I'm going to do this Christian thing anymore. I tried it when I was at college, but yeah, I'm a grown person now. And I got a job and I got a money and I got a yacht and I got a big house. Christianity is so boring. And I'm somewhat stunned because the only conclusion I've got is their part-time love of Jesus is very distasteful. The relationship with Jesus was never designed to be a part-time lover. Not wanting to take the analogy too far, but think for a moment. Maybe you had one, maybe you didn't. Had a relationship with someone, and to you, you wanted it to be a little more serious, and they just flirted and skirted around the issue. And then they come back, say, yeah, it's not really doing it for me. Of course it isn't. You haven't paid for a jolly meal when you've dated. You haven't been on time when you've dated. You haven't valued me, send me a card, send me some flowers. You haven't validated my thoughts, my affections, my love. Of course, it isn't going to work. Your part-time love of me will not cut it. 
And the same is true, dear friends, to those who say Christianity is boring. I notice, can I say with fatherly affection, that you pop in from time to time in Christian community and wonder why it's not fun. Now and again, you pray and wonder why it carries no power. This is what we've been invited into. I know it seems strange into Southern California with its passivity and its understated bling. It's there, it's just understated. But oh, what a joy when we say yes to Jesus and we embrace a life of unpredictability and sacrifice. We have a man who got dramatically came to faith from a Buddhist background right now in Sri Lanka and preached the gospel with, with abandonment, sacrifice, and gave it his all. And when he came back into the town, the Buddhist monks cornered him and beat him to within an inch of his life. He did not bemoan the fact that this Christianity is not worth it because Christ was so compelling to him that he came back the next week limping, battered and bruised. And the Buddha said, why have you come back? And he said, it's because Jesus loves you this much, I have to tell you. And they said, now we believe it is true. A part-time Christian love is highly distasteful beyond any sense of compulsion. Let's read the next quote. A theologian called Edgar Johnson Goodspeed said this, where Within 80 pages will be found such varied series of exciting events, trials, riots, persecutions, escapes, martyrdoms, voyages, shipwrecks, rescues set in an amazing panorama of the ancient world, Jerusalem, Antioch, Philippi, Corinth, Athens, Ephesus, Rome. And the scenery and the settings, temples, courts, prisons, deserts, ships, barracks, theaters, as any opera, such variety, Goodspeed asks, a bewildering range of scenes and actions of speeches that passes before the eye of the historian. And in all of them, he sees the providential hand that has made and guided this great movement for the salvation of mankind. Ladies and gentlemen, this is an extraordinary book. If we take it to heart and with humility ask God to reveal our story in this story, as we will look at one in just a moment, I think you too will be compelled to forfeit the life of self-preservation and embrace a life of self-sacrifice. We're going to look very briefly at four big ideas in this passage. The first is the king. Meryl's going to come and just talk to us a little about this Jesus who began to do. Then we will examine again briefly, time does not allow us to, we will look at the kingdom of the king. Thirdly, we will drift down and have a look at divine delays. What happens when God doesn't appear on time? And then lastly, again, we'll intro it and we'll come back to it in two weeks' time, divine dunamis, divine power. What is it like to live a life that is supernaturally Natural. So, without any ado, ladies and gentlemen, my wonderful wife. Thanks, love. Can I put it up here? Yeah. Probably want to turn it the right way up. Thank you. Um, 
After Sunday, sorry, I'm just getting the approval from my son who I haven't seen and I don't like telling stories, you know, that involve him if I haven't, so I needed to find him. (laughs) But after last Sunday when Chris preached, my son and I had a conversation about Jesus, warrior, king, lion, and also about savior, servant, lamb. And I don't know if you know, but Chris asked the question, what is the part of Jesus that you more... Um, that you know the least. And Tian and I spoke about how Jesus doesn't cease being one when he is the other. And he was always both, you know, he's the lion and the lamb. He's the king and the servant, the warrior and the savior. So he's both, but he chooses to restrain the lion to be the lamb. And it got me thinking that naturally, or maybe it's more temperamentally, I'm kind of drawn to the lamb. And uh, that's, you know, I just, I love the lamb of God that was sacrificed on my behalf. And um, on our sabbatical, there were two primary desires that I had. One was for me to be in intimacy with Jesus, more intimacy with Jesus. And the other was intimacy with myself. And on sabbatical, I discovered afresh how intimacy with God cannot be rushed. And I know that sounds so simple and basic and so obvious, but I think in our modern day-to-day life, we try and rush our times with God because we've got to get somewhere else. And um, I don't know, do you remember that awful, I don't, maybe, maybe you don't, maybe it was my era, I don't know, that awful speed dating thing that you would do in crowds and groups of like young people. <laughs> Well, it was a group activity and you had like moments with someone to ask questions, to try and determine whether this was mutual interest. Well, and then you rush to the next person. <laughs> Did anybody do that? No. <laughs> Dana, are you teasing me? Okay. Anyway, that, that does not, I just, I just want to tell you, that does not work. Oh, dear. <laughs> In, in your relationships with God, and it certainly doesn't work in your relationships with human beings. You cannot rush around trying to meet as many people as you can and find out, is there mutual interest here? You've got to take time. You've got to slow down. You've got to get to know each other. And that's what it looks like with God too. Um, we need to quieten the galloping stallions of demands of the to-do lists that come into our brains every single morning. I literally do this as an exercise in the morning because as soon as I wake up, those stallions come running, rushing at my brain with the to-do list and I have to quieten them down, slow them down so that I can be with the lover of my soul. We need to be present. We need to be quiet. We need to sit. We need to listen. We need to just be And when I don't quieten that concophony of myriad voices distracting me everywhere, I find and find the stillness of his whispers, then I don't find that central point of bliss. Now, that's a beautiful line, and it comes from John Wesley, and I'm going to read you this. It's actually one of my favorite, favorite poems. Um, And it's called Weary Souls. Weary souls that wander wide from the central point of bliss. Turn to Jesus crucified, fly to those dear wounds of his, sink into the purple flood, 
rise into the life of God. Find in Christ the way of peace, peace unspeakable, unknown. By his pain, he gives you ease, life in his expiring groan. Rise exalted by his fall. Find in Christ your all in all. O believe the record true, God to you his son hath give. Ye may now be happy too. Find on earth the life of heaven. Live the life of heaven above. All the life of glorious love. This the universal bliss. Bliss for every soul designed. God's original promise this. God's great gift to all mankind. Blessed in Christ this moment be. Blessed for all eternity. Isn't that exquisite? We don't use the term bliss, do we, much. But my my granddaughter uh, in Australia is called Liberty Bliss. And I absolutely love that name. Bliss is the ecstatic joy of heaven. It is perfect happiness. It is pure, serene joy. Bliss is physical, but it's also emotional, spiritual, mental. Jesus being our central point of bliss is the joy that makes us oblivious to everything else. Have you had those moments in God where you've experienced him in such a sweet way that everything else becomes completely irrelevant? There's a current favorite song, and it's Give Me Jesus by, I think it's the upper room, but it's this line. All of the things I thought I wanted don't come close to knowing you. Jesus is that one thing. More important and valuable than anything or anyone else. He is also the lion of the tribe of Judea. Judah, sorry. The Narnia movie, uh, I think most of you have seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Okay, the Narnia movie to me brilliantly portrays Aslan as this lion. Aslan is regal, majestic, and yet he has this easy authority, just comes in on the scene and everything quietens because of his presence. And yet Aslan is caring, he's compassionate, he's gracious with sinners. In fact, he sacrifices himself to free Edmund. Now, I don't know about you, maybe I'm revealing my sinful self, but who at that point in the movie just doesn't feel angry at Edmund? Like, come on, you selfish, I want to say something bad. <laughs> Such stupidity. Turkish delight, really? I mean, I just find myself so offended by this character. And yet Aslan sacrifices himself to free the bondage that Edmund brought. And um, I also find myself screaming internally at Aslan. Tion and I concurred on this, where, where he's being sacrificed. And I'm like, no, don't let them do this to you. Stop this. Like, Kill them all, you know, because I know he can. And anyway, that's being very real. These scenes in Narnia actually really help me with compassion and understanding for Peter. Because, you see, Peter, um, you know, he, um, sorry, Peter's confusion in Gethsemane and then his denial in the courtyard this, that scene actually helps me understand it because Peter really believed that Jesus was the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
He was the king. He was the deliverer. He was the warrior. And he was coming to free the Jewish people from Roman oppression. Peter didn't understand. And these are two of my favorite words, but God. He didn't understand the but God. Jesus knew that the deliverance he was inaugurating was more powerful and profound than the simple freedom from Rome. He was doing something far greater than that. He was purchasing freedom for for, for all of us from our sins and from death. John 1, 2 says this, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We are now the children of God. We are bought and paid for by Jesus' death and resurrection. And in John 10, verse 27 and 28, it says this. This is what Jesus says. I know them. This is what he gained. I know them. I give them eternal life. No one can snatch them from my hand, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I love that. Absolutely love that. I'd like to just end my little portion with a testimony of how this lion deliverer um, revealed himself to me. Um, I was, I don't even know how old, whatever I was, 23 or 4, and I had my first baby. But I had some complications because I had preeclampsia toxemia, And due to those complications, I had extremely high blood pressure. And even once the baby was delivered, my little girl, Nasia, my blood pressure stayed really high. And so they put me on strong, strong medicine to get the blood pressure down. And that first night after giving birth on the strong medicine, I've subsequently looked it up and it is a thing. But I had the most horrific, horrific nightmare I've ever had. This this graphic visual, I mean, it felt like it was happening like for real, right in front of me. And um, I was awake seeing it all happen, and it was very demonic, very paralyzing. I literally, you know, couldn't move, sheer terror. Chris comes the next morning, sees me, I tell him all about it, and he says to me, Meryl, did you call upon the name of Jesus? Uh, Wish I had have thought about that. (laughs) I didn't. I hadn't called upon the name of Jesus. He says, Next time that happens, call upon the name of Jesus. And you know what? It happened again. I had this terrible, graphic, awful nightmare. I think it was the medicine. And I remember lying there in that hospital bed, and I tried to say the name of Jesus. And you know that I couldn't. It was like somebody had put um, a block over my mouth, sealed my mouth, and my throat couldn't form any words. And I lay there and I had just this horrible dream and I just kept in my head going, Jesus, Jesus. And eventually this little squeak of Jesus came out my mouth, literally this tiny little squeak. And then I said it again, it was barely audible. And then I just kept saying the name of Jesus. Do you know that he came into that room? Darkness fled. The nightmare disappeared and he delivered me and I was free. And I remember thinking, that is the name of Jesus that I haven't known. That 
is the name of Jesus. His name is power. His name is healing. His name is life. He breaks every stronghold. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the conquering king. And he is the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He is the light of the world and his name is Jesus. So what we're going to find as we take a walk through these chapters is the Jesus that Meryl spoke about, the healing Jesus, the forgiving Jesus, the reconciling Jesus, the saving Jesus, delivering Jesus, restoring Jesus, freeing Jesus, loving Jesus, kind Jesus, table-turning Jesus. I read that this morning. Um, the anxious Jesus, the miracle-working Jesus, and the risen Jesus. Watch as He reveals Himself through the book. Don't simply attach yourself, magnet yourself to the parts of Jesus you like. Allow Him to open your hearts up to the parts you might not know as well. Healing. Um, I have seen, we have seen people healed. We have seen a friend of mine saw someone rise from the dead. I wish it happened to me, but then God knew I couldn't handle it. I would have been proud and arrogant and told the story every time I preached. So it hasn't happened to me. But that doesn't mean we can't hold to that and explore and discover this Jesus. Very quickly then, secondly, the kingdom of this king. I did think long and hard how to talk about this because the problem is there's so much. So allow me by way of helping us understand the kingdom, he transforms us, the kingdom, he instructs us and then he impacts life through us. And the story of Florence Nightingale came to mind. And I wasn't really sure why, but I'll give you a quick praise of the story. How many of you know Florence Nightingale, just out of interest? Okay, oh wow, okay. She was born in 1820 in Florence, Italy, of wealthy, aristocratic British parents. She, um, that's why they called her Florence. It wasn't a name very popular with uh, ladies at the time, but her parents were very progressive, very liberal. Uh, the two sisters were raised into an interesting life of academia. The dad, contrary to popular culture of the day, taught them. Taught them Italian, taught them French, taught them German, I believe. They traveled, they saw the world, and that's a high point in understanding the will of God is to get out of your circumstances. But at the age of 17, which is where our story gains traction. She tells that she heard God speak to her. She was an attractive woman by all descriptions. That's one of the few photographs we have of her. But at the age of 17, that would have been 1837. She was sitting in her garden in one of their estates. They had four. And God spoke to her about the fact that she would spend her life caring for the poor. Now, in that time, it was not applauded or commonly accepted for a wealthy woman to do anything but to find the right suitor, get married, have children, keep the servants busy, knit and play the piano. Somehow, that for Florence Nightingale was not very compelling. And so 
any sense of a profession like nursing, which was in the most horrible sense, a survival profession, was frowned upon. When she expressed interest to her parents, based on the Word of God she had when she was 17, her parents were disgusted. Her mother was so displeasured. She had a number of suitors, men of great means and influence, who came to ask for her hand of marriage, one particularly that she limped with for the rest of her life because she loved him. But she turned him down. Because she felt God say, that she would spend the rest of her days caring for the poor. Now, you may say, Chris, what does this have to do with the kingdom? The kingdom is that realm where Jesus rules and reigns. It's not only a spiritual idea or a philosophical idea. It's a very practical idea. I wish I could spend 40 minutes just on Florence Nightingale. Sufficient to say against the will of her parents, which is a big point. Sometimes the obeying God is more important than obeying our parents. And I say, as a parent of three, a grandparent of six, that is not something we want to hear from anyone. But against the wishes of her parents, she turned down her suitors and sent herself to Germany, where she studied for three months at the Kaiser Wern Hospital in Dusseldorf. Three months. And she came back and was made the superintendent of a hospital in London. Now, to give you some idea of what the hospital's like, they said most of the nurses, I put in quotation marks, had to arrive at work drunk. The stench was so overwhelming, the trauma so extensive, that the only way they could stay in this highly frowned upon profession was not to be sober. But that was not her turning point. The turning point was the Crimean War fought in what is today Turkey between Russia and an allied force predominantly driven by England. She had on occasion, one of her trips, met the man who became the British cabinet minister for defense. The parliament sent a kind of a royal commission to find out why so many men were dying in the hospitals. At the end of the Crimean War, there were 4,000 men died. 19,000 men died in the hospital. 42% of men who came into the hospital died, predominantly not of their injuries, but of tuberculosis and other related diseases. Where is the kingdom of God in the 17-year-old girl who felt God call her to give herself away to care for the poor? She was asked by the Minister of Defence to go to Istanbul, wasn't called that at the time, and to find out what the field hospital was like. She arrived with 38 women, mostly untrained in any level, shape or form in nursing because there were no nursing schools. She arrived there only to find that the military doctors held her with great reservation and it was only after a particular battle when they were so swamped by the injured that they were called upon to help. The hospital was situated on a sewerage dump. They sloshed around in their own water. Sheets, if they had any, were never washed. Bandages were never cleaned. Instruments in the operating room as best as it was were never tidied, and so she started by introducing the washing of hands. Never been done before. Not 
in that world. She was eventually pulled off the front line, having changed from the percentages of 42% of men would die to 2%. And she started her journey in what has made her, I'm, I'm having to be brief now because I get lost in my own storytelling, but she has been called the founder of modern nursing. She's got how many awards? I think four of them. A couple from the Queen Victoria was one of her friends. Now, ladies and gentlemen, why I'm telling you this story is because in the middle of the battle, when all the other nurses went to sleep, when all the doctors, as they best as they were, were exhausted and went to lie down, Florence Nightingale would take a lamp and would go from room to room, or I quote the poet uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Lo, in that house of misery, a lady with a lamp I see, pass through the glimmering gloom and fit from room to room. She took a lamp and spent most of the night, every night, going from room to room, sitting with soldier to soldier, walking them through their journey of recovery. Ladies and gentlemen, that is as much advancing the kingdom of God as is anything else. In our more charismatic circles, when we hear the kingdom of God, we think signs, wonders, and miracles, and I want those. But a woman who heard the voice of God and spent the rest of her life, she was 17 when she heard the call. She died when she was 90. She started a nurse's training center at St. Thomas's in London. She wrote over 200 books, documents, and articles. She gave her life to change the practice of nursing as it is today because someone submitted to the rule and reign of Christ in the realm that he had called her to. What is your story? What is mine? It costs. To bow a humble knee to the king of this kingdom costs. But great is the reward and rich is the uh, fruit that comes out of an obedient life and we will see this. Very quickly, two last ones and we will land at the table. Not only is there a king that Meryl so beautifully described, lion and lamb, not only is there a kingdom that is forcefully advanced, Jesus said, but there is divine delays. Right here in this beautiful passage of Scripture, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. I want to make just a handful of points. You are so wonderfully and privileged, youthful, and young in the adventure of life that lies before you. And to many of you, wait is a four-letter word. Wait. It was to Joseph, your peer, as a 17-year-old. He had two incredible dreams that showed his family and the multitudes bowing down to him. He couldn't wait. He couldn't incubate the, the, the prophetic pregnancy in his soul. So he just told everyone, guess what's going to happen to me, guys? You're going to bow down to me. What happened? 13 years in slavery and imprisonment until God brought him out. It's one of the most difficult things when we are seated with an idea or a thought or a dream or a vision to wait and let God do what only God can do. As we look at next week, and I'm delighted Wendy and I are going to co-teach it, but we see four things happen. They return to the last mentioned place, Jerusalem. 
They rallied together as community. They prayed and they got leadership ready for the adventure which lies ahead. Divine delays are extremely difficult. And lastly, the king, the kingdom of the king, divine delays and now divine dunamis. You know, folks, these notes have jumped in here. There are two verses of Scripture that I thought would be so relevant for us as we land. The anticipation of something extraordinary, something supernatural. Bearing in mind, John 14, 12, which says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. Whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. My dear Theophilus, this is an account of all that Jesus did and taught. Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. This is an invitation to greater things, an expectation in our heart that God dare use ordinary, fragmented, broken people just like us to do extraordinary things because Jesus said we would. And then Matthew 19, Jesus looked in them and said, what man Sorry, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. To me, this is a book of impossibility. A group of men and women fearfully hiding away in the upper room. Please don't tell me that they were courageous and faithful. They hid around community. They were insular and self-surviving. And it's that group of people that God chooses to pour His Spirit on, as we'll see in two weeks' time. Where God chooses to put His Spirit on them to live lives beyond themselves. Meryl and my dream, we've married 43 years next month. But our dream in our 80s is to walk on the beach hand in hand and tell of all the great things, each other, of all the great things that God has done, the impossible things. Not the things we can manage or control or handle. We were very young when God started prying our fingers of his narrative. And we're still doing it. We still want to control. And then he peels our fingers back because his invitation is to an impossible story. We stunned. We had a fight two days ago. Horrible fight. It was horrible. And, and we all know whose fault it was. Mine. It's always my fault. Well, unless I arrive at that conclusion, my marriage is no hope. As long as it's the other person's, my marriage is hopeless and despairing. But if it's my fault, then there is hope because God can do something with me. The impossibility of God taking a broken, fragmented human being like me to ask me to live in holy sacra- sacrament, sacrimony, sacra, saint, sacra, get in the sack with, what was that one? Yeah, but, but do you understand, the, what God's called us to is the impossible. And, and this introduction, these 11 verses are introducing us to the impossible. And say, so this is what you're going to do. You're going to worship a king who's a lion and a lamb. You're going to live in a kingdom where his rule and reign is going to be superior to anything you put on the table. And oh, by the way, you're going to have to die. It's going to have divine delays that freak you out. 
that I was supposed to be married when I'm 22 and I'm 37 now and I'm still not married. It's going to freak you out. Because divine delays, none of us want them. I wanted, from when I was a little girl, she says, to have children and I still don't have children. There are divine delays, I say with compassion and with understanding. And this book will help us understand those moments that are so traumatic for us. And God invites us to live an impossible, an impossible story. I'm going to close with this very practical story. I want us to come to the table. The numbers don't convert, so forgive me. All four of our parents are still alive and still married, 67 years each of them. The only problem is my generation is the sandwich generation. We have to look after our parents and put our kids through college. First time in history that's happened. So we had a meeting, Meryl's two sisters, and um, about their folks, as I had with my siblings about my folks, because we're running out of money. I mean, to take care of the family. And in preparing that morning, I felt God say to me, son, this is a faith walk. One plus one does not equal two. This is not how much money can you give, how much money can you give. Okay, let's add those numbers up and see how much we have. This is one plus one equals three. This is about a supernatural, impossible God that has invited us to care for our parents with joy and with generosity. And while we were having this meeting, it came to our attention because we didn't know that her mom had had some dental and medical work that there was no money for. So my brother-in-law, who is a doctor, covered some of it. And I turned to the older sister. I said, Trace, how much money is short on this deal? And she looked at me and she said, Chris, 14,000 rand. Hard to convert because then it feels like Nothing, but it's something there. I had just been given a gift of 14,000 rand two days before. And I said, Trace, I want to put that on the table. I want the debt to be cleared. Because God's asked us to do impossible things. Two days later, a man walks up to me and he says to me, Chris, I've just felt like God's laid it upon my heart to give you, how much? 14,000 rand. He didn't know. No one knew but the four of us who were in the meeting. I saw Meryl's eldest sister. I said, Trace, let me tell you what just happened. Remember we needed money for the parents? 14,000 rand. It's impossible. It seems too big. Where are we going to get the money from? I said, we gave, Meryl and I gave. I said, you know what just happened to me? And she looked at me, love Tracy, just with a deep look. She said, what? I said, someone has just given me, not more, not less, 14,000 rand. You see, folks, the invitation of this book is to an impossible life, the supernatural sense of divine dunamis, power, where we live a life that doesn't make sense sometimes. It's not a life of one plus one equals two. It is a life of one plus one equals three. 
where God does extraordinary things, exceedingly abundantly, more than we can ask or imagine. And that is the invitation to this book. The origins of our story is in the impossibility. And that's what we're inviting you into. It could be your college fund that you need money you don't have. It could be a car you need that you cannot afford. It does not matter what it is. It could be God's put in your heart. Uh, Daniel, I haven't seen her tonight, but has a heart to go to Beirut, Lebanon, to take the gospel there. There is an invitation to the impossible. We're going to come to communion now.